0: The Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of the prophet Amos. Amos chapter 9, beginning at verse 11. We'll be reading through verse 15 this evening. The word of the Lord. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, and repair its breaches, and raise up its runes, and rebuild it as in the days of old. But they may possess the remnant of Edom And all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord, who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow into it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities, and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading for this evening will be taken from the John chapter 4, beginning at verse 27. We'll be reading through verse 42 this evening. This portion of God's word is familiar to most of us. It begins uh, with Jesus having met with a Samaritan woman by the well, and Jesus' disciples having gone into town to buy food for them to eat, with Jesus remaining at the well because he had been worn out by the journey, And so when you hear the word they here at the beginning of this passage, that refers to Christ's disciples who are returning from the town. John chapter 4, beginning at verse 27. The word of our God. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled he was talking with a woman, but no one said... What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes, and see that the fields are white, for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him. That this is indeed the Savior of the world. Follow me. That is what Jesus says. The most basic call that Jesus has upon your life is follow me. Uh, This reminds us that Jesus is not simply calling us to make a profession so that we will be forgiven. Jesus is calling us to become his disciples, to follow him, to walk in his paths, to do his business, and to become like him. It also means that Jesus has gone before us to blaze the trail. In tonight's passage, we see Christ as the great evangelist. He goes before his disciples as the one sent from the Father to reconcile the world to himself. In the process, he shows his disciples what the future of their missionary activity will look like, and also what is at the pulsating heart of the Christian mission. Then when Jesus is raised from the dead, he tells his disciples what he says to each and every one of us, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. Thankfully, Jesus is not simply sending us out on a desperate last-ditch attempt to build the kingdom of God. Jesus is empowering us to partake in his mission, a mission that cannot fail, so that one day the Lord our God will be worshipped by a vast multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we have the privilege of participating in this mission, and God will give it success. This evening we're looking at how this great mission gets off the ground with the Samaritans. In many ways for the disciples, this is ground zero of their missionary work. Well, you'll recall that Jesus had met with a Samaritan woman by the well. Jesus loved this despised Samaritan woman enough to cross over all the cultural taboos to talk with her, to ask her to give her give him a drink from her own um, drinking jar, her water jar. And we're actually told in the passage that, on her lips, Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans. I mean, this wasn't just they were two different people. They despised one another. Uh, Earlier on, uh, before Jesus was born, uh, Jews had actually gone up and destroyed the Samaritan sacred place. These people hated each other. But Jesus loved this woman so much he crossed over those boundaries. But Jewish leaders frequently ridiculed Jesus for this very activity. That he was a friend of notorious sinners. But aren't you glad that he is? Jesus loved the Samaritan woman enough to offer her the gift of new life. That is, living water. And Jesus loved the Samaritan woman enough to tell her the truth about her life. Not to hurt her, but in order to heal her, to bring her to the place of forgiveness. Indeed, the Samaritan woman was sitting across from the one man who loved her so much that he would give his life for her. The Samaritan woman had come to understand that Jesus was a true prophet, a prophet who was offering a new life from above. At the very end of their conversation, she had said, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Then Jesus replied, I, the one who am speaking to you, I am he. This evening, we're going to look at the rest of the story under three headings. First, the surprising work of the kingdom. Second, in the school of mission with Jesus Christ. And third, the glorious confession of the Samaritans. Let me give those to you again. First, the surprising work of the kingdom. Second, in the school of mission with Jesus Christ. And third, the glorious confession of the Samaritans. We begin with the surprising work of the kingdom. Look at verse 27 with me. Just then, that is, just as Jesus and the Samaritan woman were finishing their conversation, Christ's disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? For once the disciples had the wisdom to keep their mouths shut. Nevertheless, their astonishment teaches us something really important while Jesus was crossing over all sorts of cultural taboos to engage this despised Samaritan woman with the gospel, that isn't something that they would have done, at least not yet. This reality draws our attention to one of the biggest obstacles to the spread of the gospel throughout the history of the church, a barrier that exists not out there, but in here in our own hearts. We all naturally tend to predefine what sort of people are good prospects for becoming Christians. Even if we know that's not right, we all tend to naturally do that. We have a vision of that person's a good candidate, this person, not so much. Sometimes prejudice runs so deep that there is an opposition to the very idea of sharing the good news with those sort of people. For example, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul tells of those Jews who were attempting to hinder the spread of the gospel to the Gentiles because they didn't want the Gentiles to be saved. Well, I trust that none of us here this evening have that sort of prejudice. That's not our struggle. But we have a struggle nonetheless. All things being equal... I'm sure you would be happy to see the Syrians, the Somalis, the Yemenis all turn to Christ and be grafted into his family. The problem we face is far more mundane than that, but it's every bit as serious. Do we care less about sharing the gospel with people who are militantly pro-abortion, or who are radically opposed to all our political views, they actually support candidates, That we find appalling? Are we slow to share the gospel with people who despise us simply because we are Christians? Do we imagine that people who are like us are somehow better candidates to hear the gospel, or that they are people who we frankly would prefer not to have in our churches? And Beloved, if you search your heart, you'll realize that this is not just a hypothetical set of questions. We need to remind ourselves that Jesus came not to save the righteous, but to save the sinners. And that sinner is one category that every single person on the face of the earth falls into. Our mission field is everyone. Now the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other so much That many pious Jews would take a longer journey from Jerusalem to Galilee simply to avoid coming into contact with the Samaritans. Yet Jesus didn't simply engage the Samaritans. He engaged a Samaritan woman who was herself utterly despised by the people of her own village for her own sexual immorality. This is the Jesus whom we call Lord but more importantly, this is the Jesus who's your Lord who calls you to come and follow him. For the moment, we leave the astonished disciples to hear the testimony of an astonishing woman. Look at verses 28 and 29 with me. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, come. See a man who told me all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Uh, There's an urgency in this woman's actions. Uh, Isn't that why she left the water jar behind? Uh, She wasn't trained in personal evangelism. Uh, She couldn't explain the trinity or the differences between millennial positions. Uh, This woman couldn't have lectured on the covenant of grace. Nor was she qualified to teach our children in Sunday school. But she was gripped by who Jesus was and what he had told her. So she runs to the village gates and starts telling people about Jesus. Beloved, you don't need more education to tell people about Jesus. That might be helpful. All you need to do is be excited about him. We'll discover something remarkable at the end of today's passage. Uh, Some of the Samaritan people came to faith in Jesus simply on the basis of this woman's testimony, even before they meet Jesus? Given that she was a notorious sinner and an outcast, what was it about her testimony that led some to believe and so many to go out in order to meet him? Two thoughts. First, everyone who believed this woman's testimony did so because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, That should encourage us as we tell people about Jesus, it is in fact fine for you to study and to work at how you share Jesus more effectively with greater clarity, how you bring the gospel to bear in people's lives. That's a useful thing to do, it's a right thing to do. But most of us don't need greater preparation. We simply need a greater willingness to speak up. Would you pray that the Lord would give you that willingness? but he would open your heart and your eyes to the opportunities that are all around you. Not to give a lecture, but simply to point someone to the goodness of Jesus Christ and the fact that they can find forgiveness of sins in him. Then ask the Lord to give you the excitement to speak up and personally take part in the spread of the gospel, just like this Samaritan woman did. Second, While the Holy Spirit is free to work apart from means, he frequently uses them. This Samaritan woman was drawing water under the scorching heat of the sun because she was ashamed to be around her fellow Samaritans. Remember when Jesus talks to her, he talks about the fact that she's already had several husbands and the man she's living with isn't even her husband. Right? It's an unmasking of her life. And she's coming out to the well because she's ashamed and then these town folks here running back in, and she doesn't have shame and guilt. She's just excited about the fact that she might have met the Messiah. What happened to her shame? I want to suggest that Jesus took it away. This transformation must have been quite striking in a small town where every single adult would have known this woman's sordid past. How would the Samaritans respond? Verse 30 tells us that they responded by going out to meet with Jesus. And while the Samaritans are coming to Jesus, the scene shifts back to Jesus sitting with just his disciples around the well. Uh, Jesus is blazing the trail and taking the gospel first to the Samaritans. Also then we're going to see to the Gentiles end of a Jewish people who's been evangelizing already, but he's also training his disciples to embrace his mission, to redeem a vast multitude from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So I call this section In the School of Mission with Jesus Christ. A Steve Green song contains a powerful and memorable stanza. To love the Lord our God is the heartbeat Of our mission, the spring from which our service overflows across the street or around the world, the mission is still the same proclaim and live the truth in Jesus' name. Isn't that the very thing that Jesus is showing us in this passage? He's proclaiming and living the truth. Of course, He is the truth. His disciples are trying to give Jesus food. Uh, That makes good sense. After all, they had left him at the well hungry and tired from the journey that they had been taking. But Jesus responds in verse 32, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Jesus' heart was in doing his father's will, and that meant loving this outcast. Now, frankly, that's a rather unexpected response. What, in fact, is Jesus saying? What is he trying to get his disciples to understand? Um, Those who regularly teach, and I am one of those people, um, believe it or not, one of the things we try to do is make things as simple as possible. We're not always successful, but that's part of our goal. We think you make things simpler, people will get them. But there's a really interesting phenomenon about Jesus' teaching. Jesus often says things in a way that is hard to grasp. Uh, That kind of challenges me because it makes me wonder. Um, Jesus obviously is a much better teacher than I am. And by making things difficult to grasp at first, people wrestle with them, they come to a deeper understanding of those truths, and it sticks with them longer. Don't worry, I'm not going to try to make my sermons any more confusing than they already are. But I do think that's something that uh, is worth puzzling over a bit when you read through the Gospel accounts But Jesus doesn't always simply give the direct and simple answer. By leading his disciples to puzzle over what he was teaching them, Jesus made his teaching memorable for them, and he also stitched this lesson more permanently into the fabric of their lives. Now, intriguingly, the disciples start by making the same mistake that the woman at the well had made. When Jesus offered her living water... She's thinking about a really good supply of physical water, not the Holy Spirit. The disciples start by asking each other, you know, did someone slip Jesus a turkey sandwich? I mean, where did he get food from? Um, They don't understand that he's talking about something much more profound than simply his daily bread. Jesus has his disciples puzzling over his words... And so he steps forward and memorably drives home the chief point. Verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now Jesus obviously has Deuteronomy 8.3 in mind. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. But Jesus is not saying this out of a mere sense of duty the whole context of the passage is about joy. Joy of the harvest. Jesus is saying that doing his Father's will is the very thing that gives him the greatest joy. Let me bring you back to an interesting phrase from verse 27. Verse 27 reads like this. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman... But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? That second question, why are you talking with her, is pretty straightforward for us to get at. But but why does John draw attention to the fact that they don't ask, it's not recording something that happened, but they don't ask, what do you seek? And I think it's because John wants us to ask the question, what exactly is Jesus seeking? I think John is making a connection with something that Jesus had earlier told the Samaritan woman. Jesus had told her, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. What is the Father seeking? People who will worship him in spirit and in truth. What is Jesus seeking? To gather people who will worship his Father in spirit and in truth. The mission of Jesus and the mission of the Father are perfectly aligned. So much so that it is our Lord's very food to do his Father's will. And the obvious question is, what about us? What about you? How much of your joy is caught up in doing your Father's will and seeking his pleasure, and seeking that his mission would would be accomplished in the world. Jesus continues in verse 35. Do you not say that there are yet four months when comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Now, some people assume that when Jesus says, you know, in four months, uh, in terms of the harvest that it must be at the beginning of the planting season. They just planted, now you've got to wait. But I don't think that's it at all. That There's a rhythm to this passage. Do you not say? That su- suggests this is sort of a proverbial statement. Do you not say there are yet four months and then the harvest comes? As I say, that strikes me as a proverbial saying, which means something like, there are four months between the time one sows and the time that one reaps. You can't expect quick results, as it were. You have to be the one that sows, you have to be the one that reaps, and you have to be the one that waits. But Jesus adds Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. One of our finest New Testament scholars, D.A. Carson, suggests that Jesus is saying something like this. You think a certain gap must exist between sowing and harvest, but I am telling you that I have just sown the seed and the harvest is already taking place. Now, if this is the right interpretation, then Jesus very well may be pointing to a messianic prophecy that we read in our old covenant reading this evening from the book of the prophet Amos. Actually, it was a little earlier than the portion that we read. In Amos chapter 9, verse 3, the prophet says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. Now, there's no way to know for sure whether or not that was in Jesus' mind, but it surely fits. He's taking this image of the messianic age where the harvests are going to be so abundant that that you're not going to be going, wow, we hope the harvest comes in soon. Our, Our cupboards are getting bare. Rather, when you start bringing in the harvest, you're going to go, where are we going to put it? We have so much food left from the last harvest. And applying that truth to the Great Commission. But evangelism will bear much fruit Jesus is making clear something else. In, in the prophecy of Amos, the Lord is talking about rebuilding the fallen booth of David in the house of Israel. But Jesus is now making clear to his disciples that that house of Israel is going to include the Samaritans and in just a little while he'll make clear it's going to include the Gentiles too without them first having to become Jews. As Jesus says in Matthew eight eleven, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't that really fit with what Jesus says next? Uh, Look at verses 36 through 38 with me. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. This is a question who was it that sowed the seed among the Good Samaritans? Uh, D.A. Carson suggests it might be Jesus who had just sown the seed among them. Uh, that's certainly possible, but there are several other intriguing answers to that question. As I say, in the immediate context, Jesus and the Samaritan woman are both sowing the gospel. And our Lord's disciples are about to partake of the harvest. But the Samaritans also have the Pentateuch. We actually have today still what's called the Samaritan Pentateuch. It's just a little bit different than that in the Hebrew Bible. And they, therefore, would have been looking forward to the coming of the Messiah simply from that. But also, back in John 3.23 we are told a really fascinating thing that we probably miss because we don't know the geography of the land very well. In John 3.23, we're told that John the Baptist was baptizing at Anon near Salem. And there are two really good possibilities that scholars think Anon was, and both of them are in Samaria. But as John the Baptist, as he was going around proclaiming the Messiah had come and the kingdom of God is at hand, therefore you need to repent and get your life right with God, would have been sowing seed among the Samaritans and preparing them for the coming of the Christ. He sowed, now the disciples would reap, and all would rejoice together. Beloved, this gives us a foundational principle about carrying out the Great Commission. Mission work is not a solo sport. It is not a solo activity by uniquely gifted individuals who go out on their own and pursue this in a rugged sort of way. It is the call of the entire church. We participate together. Sometimes it's one uh, sows and another reaps. Sometimes it's teams of people. It is always all of us lifting up missionaries in prayer and providing financial support. God has given the Great Commission not to an individual or two, He has given it to us all as His church. As the Apostle Paul would later tell the Romans, how then will we call on Him? How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Every one of us, each and every one of us, has been called and privileged to be part of this work. As we pray for our foreign missionaries, we are reminded that they are not lone rangers. Rather, they are part of the extended church family. As we cooperate together to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth... As we pray for and financially support such works, God is blessing us with being part of his mission to reconcile the world to himself through Jesus Christ. You know, it would be pretty amazing when you get to the new heavens and the new earth. All these people you never even met are going to come up to you and thank you and say, you know, your support for the missionary that went to Uganda, that missionary is the one that told me about Jesus and God opened my heart and caused me to believe right because God is giving us the privilege of doing that on a regular basis through our lives. And aren't you looking forward to seeing all the lives that God has touched through the resources that he has placed in your hands which you have invested in the worldwide mission of the gospel. Of course we are doing the same work in our own backyard right here in New England. As Steve Green so beautifully put it, across the street or around the world, the mission is still the same. Proclaim and live the truth in Jesus' name. Now with our Lord's words ringing in their ears, the disciples lift their eyes to see a stream of Samaritans coming out to meet with Jesus. Then we are told in verse 39... Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. Now, personally, I find that utterly astounding, but also rather encouraging. Honestly, if I was writing the story, none of these Samaritans would have come to faith until they actually met Jesus. I mean, the best this woman was going to do was make them curious. But I am not writing the story of history. God is. And almighty God saved a number of Samaritan people by the simplest testimony of a woman who really didn't know very much theology. How's that even possible? Well, first I want to say why it's so encouraging to me. I think the Lord is telling us by putting this in this passage that as we too bear witness to Jesus Christ, he's saying, I used her. I will use you too. You are qualified to do this. Verse 40. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. Uh, This verse will take on greater meaning at the end of the chapter. When our Lord's own people refused to welcome him, As we were told in the prologue, he came on to his own people and his own people did not receive him. We'll even see Jewish people, the very next scene, who try to throw Jesus off a cliff. We will see Jesus' people begging Jesus to depart from their region. But here we see the despised Samaritans pleading with Jesus to stay with them and to teach them. As Paul would later write to the Corinthians... God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Is that the desire of your heart this evening? Is that your very food to do your father's will? Do you know the joy of boasting in the Lord? And not surprisingly, as the Samaritans spend time with Jesus, we are told in verse 41 that many more believe because of his word. Then the Samaritans turned to the woman and said, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Now, I don't think this is a dismissive comment. I don't think they're putting this woman down at all. I think they are grateful that she told them about Jesus. They're simply acknowledging the truth that they've come to hear Jesus himself and listening to Jesus teach They have come to know that Jesus is even greater than she had told them. It's a really remarkable declaration. We have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. See, earlier Jesus had told the woman at the well that salvation is from the Jews, the good news they now recognize is it's from the jews but it's not only for the jews when they declare that jesus is the savior of the world they're saying he's our savior too and as we will hear throughout the rest of the new testament he's the savior even of us gentiles this means that both jesus is the savior of the whole world and the whole world only has one savior Jesus isn't merely the savior of our group, our tribe, or our nation. Jesus has died for and is actively rescuing people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But against the lie that all religions lead to God, or that each people can have their own savior or saviors, and Christianity just happens to be the path that we are following, God's word insists that salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given by which men must be saved. Jesus is the only hope that you will ever have. But beloved, thanks be to God, Jesus is the only hope that you or anyone you meet will ever need. Well, what will you do with that truth? That's the question, of course. This is not simply written down to tickle our ears. What will we do with this truth? This portion of God's word shows us Jesus shocking his own disciples by engaging a despised Samaritan woman with the gospel. This evening's passage shows us that Christ's very food was to do the will of his Father and to finish the work that his Father had given him to do. This evening's passage shows us Jesus as the one preeminently sent by the Father to engage in the Father's mission of reconciling the world to himself. Now Jesus is saying to you this evening, and he's saying it to all of us, come and follow me. Amen.